Welcome to those who have joined us online. And we'll be in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse 11, if you'll turn in your Bibles there. Luke 19, starting in verse 11. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word, for your truth, that you are awesome, that you are a mighty God who is strong to save, that you have a heart um, that loves us, that you're not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And thank you for your compassion and your long-suffering and your grace and the gospel and for Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, the Messiah you promised to send, who has fulfilled your law and died on the cross, rose from the dead, and is seated at your right hand. We look forward to his return, Lord, and while you tarry, may we be about your business. Thank you that you've given us your spirit, and you've given us each other for support and encouragement, for rebuke, exhortation, teaching, for service, and pray, Lord, that you'd continue to sharpen us and strengthen us as we keep our eyes on you, in Jesus' name. Amen. So you understand, we understand the concept of sowing seed and reaping a harvest, that if you were to sow a farmer, like for me, sowing something doesn't mean much, but a farmer who actually knows what they're doing, uh, the right season and everything, um, if, if they sow a thousand kilos of seed, it's going to bear more than one kilo of seed. And Jesus, in the parable of the sower, he said that seed, the seed that sprouts, it grows plants that yield different amounts. Like he says, some yielded 30-fold, some 60-fold, and some 100-fold. So each individual plant can be more fruitful than another. You can have two avocado trees, and one is just bearing a lot of fruit. The other one, you're like, it's never grown an avocado. Uh, it looks like the other tree, but it just doesn't really produce. And maybe for those of us who don't have the green thumb... The idea of putting money into bank and receiving a set amount of interest is helpful to say like that, okay, a million dollars in the bank at 10% interest would make more than $100 in the bank. And uh, so our efforts for the kingdom of God, they, they, do, they may, will make an impact on the fruitfulness, right? Our faithfulness impacts the fruitfulness. And it's the one who's in, willing to invest, though there is a degree of risk, uh, expense, and intentional action required, that's the one who's going to receive the rewards. And it's ironic that seed is precious, and yet it's most profitable when it's thrown on the ground. And we usually don't throw precious things in the dirt. That's not where it belongs. But the farmer does this in the heat of the sun with great effort. He irrigates the furrows and uses water that could have supplied his family and his herds with, with life-supplying water um, in hope of a harvest that he can't yet see. But that water is useful in an arid climate. But he says, I'm going to plant this seed, I'm going to water this seed, and in time it will produce. He has a hope or an expectation that's what's going to happen. And that's just a shadow of the hope that we have as believers that Jesus is returning as we seek him, serve him, and trust him. And so we labor for the kingdom of God in a, in a darkened world, in a world ruled by Satan now, and we may not see the reward of our labors or even fruitfulness that we desire, but we can know it will happen. And Jesus is returning to judge sinners, to reward his servants. 
One of the last things Jesus said in Revelation 22, 12, it says, And behold, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. So we will be rewarded according to our works. Farmers don't have any guarantee of a bountiful harvest, but we are assured as Christians of glorious rewards from our Father in heaven. Last week, we talked about the blind man who cried out for mercy and Jesus healed. And we also spoke of the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus, who was born again when he trusted in Christ after Jesus invited himself over to his house. Both men were radically changed because of that close encounter with Jesus, and I pray that you too are changed when you encounter him today as we read his word. So Luke 19, verse 11. Now as they heard these things, he spoke another parable, because he was near Jerusalem, and because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. Therefore, he said, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. So he called ten of his servants, delivered to them ten minas, and said to them, do business till I come. Jesus addressed people who thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately, and He was followed by people who believed he was the Messiah. They believed he would be made king, that his fame had gone throughout all the land. His his name was on everyone's lips as like, he is the one. He is the promised Messiah, the one who is going to overthrow our enemies and reestablish Israel as as really the dominant world power. And Jesus spoke this parable to those who believed that there would be a delay in the establishment of his kingdom. It's like they recognize he was the Messiah. They're like, we've waited so long for the Messiah to come. He's finally here. Why wait anymore? Now is the time. You know, three years of ministry and his fame had gone everywhere with his powerful words, his miraculous works, and there was no doubt in their minds. They're like, why wait? Now is the time. Now, because our lives are measured in finite time, time can almost become an idol to us. In one sense, time tells us what to do, right? We set alarms so that we don't miss the train or forget medication. As a kid, I wondered when I would get to drive a car or when I would meet my future wife, and we're impressed by how fast a runner is or a computer runs or a car drives in comparison to the slower ones, and, we just, and so time is the measurement of how good something is. We tell people, we explain our experience through how long we've been on the job. Like, well, as a worker for 40 years in that industry, I have some qualifications to talk about it, right? So we use it to kind of bolster ourselves. And we can be encouraged when we actually choose the fast queue at Bunnings, which is like a unicorn. It's super rare. Um... Or we're discouraged because we're wanting things to happen and it's just not happening. And all this is relative to time. And in creating time, God, and giving us a will, God has made room for all manner of delays and for our expectations to be crushed. But you know, there's a delay between sowing and reaping and growing. There's a a delay God made between infancy and adulthood. God's wisdom is seen in delays. We want to be at the destination instantly, but God has made life a journey so that moment by moment, day by day, we're choosing, learning to draw near to him. 
In this parable, a nobleman, he goes into a far country to receive the kingdom and return. I think of Saul and David, who were kings of Israel, that they were first anointed by the prophet as directed by God. They received the kingdom. They didn't take it for themselves. And they were, they were also received by the people. And so this nobleman, before he goes to the far country, which in those days it meant a trip that you didn't know when they were going to return. Like he may not even make it there, and he may not even return. And we don't know how long that's going to be. He calls 10 of his servants, and he gives them each a mina. Now, a mina, it's no small sum. It's about 100 denarii, which would be three months' salary. And his directive was very short. He doesn't give them any specifics. He just says, do business till I come. Occupy till I come is how the King James puts it. Each is given the same amount of money to invest through trading to benefit their master's interests while he's away. It's not like the t-shirt or meme that says, uh, Jesus is coming, look busy. It's not about looking busy. Like, act like you've been doing something all this time. He knows if we've been about his business or not. He's looking for faithfulness and integrity while he's not looking over our shoulder or uh, giving us verbal commands that we can hear. Continuing in Luke 19, verse 14. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we will not have this man to reign over us. The servants of the nobleman, they were glad that their master was becoming king. I mean, that would be cool, right? You're someone's servant, and he's the one who's going to be king. And you think about, wow, how things are going to change when he has a kingdom. And, uh, but not everyone else is feeling that way. It says his citizens hated him. They send a delegation after they, we refuse the rule of this man over us. And that shows us how Jesus was sent to the lost sheep of Israel, but he was rejected. He was despised by them. He was hated, and they refused his rule over them. And he had received all power and authority from his Father in heaven. Now, it's unnecessary for us to limit that group of people to the Jews only, because in every generation there has raised up a new group that has opposed Christ, that has hated Christ, and has refused his rule over their lives. And God has given all people freedom and countless reasons to choose him. I like that the opposition and that delegation had no bearing on whether he received the kingdom or not, right? They didn't sway the one who gave him the kingdom. So even politics must bow the knee before God's purposes. Luke 19, 15. And so it was that when he returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first saying, Master, your mina has earned ten minas. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you were faithful in a very little have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Master, your mina has earned five minas. Likewise, he said to him, You also be over five cities. Though the kingdom did not appear immediately, in time the nobleman returned, having received the kingdom and authority to rule. So the master, he's become king, but his servants are still his servants. And he calls them before him, to ask how they've been going while he was away. He says, how much have you earned 
by trading during my absence. And the first had a good report. He says, Master, your mina has earned 10 minas. Now notice the way he gave that report. He doesn't say, I invested it in this and I, I did. There's no eyes there. He's saying, Master, your mina gained 10. He recognized it was the master's mina that made all the profit. It was all for the master's use. The second servant, he similarly reported, Master, your mina has earned five minas. They were conscious that the mina, or the, the increase from the mina, was all from the master's mina. It was not really their doing. And isn't this true concerning the fruitfulness that we can have for the kingdom of God? That we've been born again through faith in Jesus Christ. We're to serve him. We've all received the same gospel. We've all received the same spirit. We've all been connected into the same body of Christ, the church. We've all received the promise of eternal life and the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us according to his will. And the only way we can be profitable for in the kingdom of God is due to the Holy Spirit who empowers us. Like, it's all God's doing. It's God's plan. He's the one helping us. Jesus said this to his disciples in John 15, 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. Each branch is connected to the same life-giving source. And all who are in Christ, we share him in common. He loves us. He's atoned for our sins. He's forgiven us. He's adopted us as his children and made us fruitful. Now, if you could turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4, we'll see we have the same Spirit who gifts us according to God's will. Each of those servants could have invested their mina in countless different ways. One person could have invested in the stock market. Another one could have decided to trade in cattle. Another could have taken up farming. Uh, like there's really an incredible amount of ways they could have invested it. Um, but it was all for one purpose. And it all was received from one master for his use. And we see in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 4, that we all have received at least a spiritual gift from the Lord. It says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. We'll just stop there. Many gifts... They all fulfill the same purpose, to glorify God and to profit all, to exhort, to edify the body. It's good to receive the spiritual gift that God has you, and the question is, are we using the gift or gifts he's given us for him? The delay of the nobleman, it revealed the dedication and the diligence of the servants. In the grand scope of things, a mina is a very small thing. You think of the riches of a king and his... His realm, like one mina, is not that much. But the faithful attention by his servant in this little thing, it showed that they were capable and the one who would be responsible over a, a great thing. Ten cities. Can you imagine being the governor of ten cities? You go from, you know, three months wages, managing that, 
to managing 10 cities, getting the taxation, uh, security, water, infrastructure. I mean, it's a big, big job, but he's like, you can do that. The faithfulness of one little thing for the benefit of the master showed they would be trustworthy to further his interests on a far more grand scale. And they were rewarded according to their faithfulness because their fruitfulness came from what the master provided. Now, we can admire a person because of a fruitful ministry or because of their giftedness, but really, it's the giver who should be praised. He's the one who gave them the gift. He's the one who causes them to be fruitful for his glory. We read this view in 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 8, when Paul says, Who then is Paul, and who is Apollos, but ministers through whom you believed, as the Lord gave to each one? I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither he who plants is anything, nor he who waters, but God who gives the increase. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, and each one will receive his own reward according to his own labor. This was not false humility that Paul is using here when he says, Apollos and I are nothing. He's saying God gave the increase. We work together for the same end, and the only way we were able is God gave us the ability to do so. It's God who created seeds to germinate into growing fruitful plants, and God gives gifts to be fruitful for his kingdom. So the one who plants, the one who waters, they will receive their own reward according to their own labor. Now, we all have different roles around our house, uh, jobs or chores that we have to do. Our labors look different. Our labors for God now, it will hardly resemble what God has in store for those who are faithful to him in the future, right? A mina doesn't look at all like a city. One mina that's fruitful turning into 10 cities of responsibility. So the, the work and the labor you're doing for the Lord now, the reward that God has for you will cause you to enter in uh, as a reward to greater responsibility in his kingdom to come which is pretty, uh, it's daunting when we look at ourselves and we think, oh, I can't do that. But remember, it's God who does it. He'll help you. Luke 10, verse 20. Then another came saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have put, kept put away in a handkerchief. For I feared you because you are an austere man. You collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And you said to him, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. You knew that I was an austere man collecting what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank that at my coming I might have collected it with interest? In contrast to the two previous, one could say, hey, master, your mana made 10, mina made 10, and your mina made five. He says, I kept it hidden away in a handkerchief. Here, take what's yours. And he makes excuses. Notice he, he does use the word I quite a bit. He talks about what he knew and what he thought and his judgment of the master. And his fear of the master, he's like, I, I, I kept it hidden away because I feared you. Genuine fear alone of his master would have prompted him to labor for his master. So these are mere words. And then he blames his inaction on the master for being austere, which is severe or rough. Don't know if that's true or not, but there was this selfish desire 
to eliminate risk of loss, and he justified disobedience to his master who said, occupy till I come, and he didn't. And then he continues, he says, you collect what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. Really, it gets worse and worse. In so many words, he's saying, really, in the end, you don't need me. You'll always get your way in the end. No one can stop you from doing what you want. So what's the point of me working for you? Here's a servant who makes judgments concerning his master, really misguided ones. And the master says, out of your own mouth, I will judge you, you wicked servant. And he turns his excuses around to um, hold him accountable. Because if he truly feared his master, if he believed that he was going to return after he received the kingdom, the least he should have done was to put it in the bank because at least there would be some interest. There would be some gain. It wouldn't be much, but it would be better than nothing. It wasn't that the servant was ignorant of banks or how to invest money, but he couldn't be bothered to labor Maybe he didn't even think the master was going to come back at all. He wasn't really sure of that. And when he says, why didn't you put my money in the bank? There was no answer. Depositing the money was the least he should have done, yet he hadn't done it. And it's crazy to think that when Jesus returns, having received the kingdom, he's going to settle accounts with believers, and we will give a report for how we've invested the gift that he's given us. And none of us, I do not want to be in the servant's position. Nothing to give God beyond what he's already given because we refuse to invest it. And God's given countless ways for us to labor for his kingdom, to share the gospel, to use the physical, spiritual, and temporal gifts he gives us. And it's a cop-out to just say passively, let God's will be done. He'll sort it all at the end. Yes, he will sort it out in the end. But uh, we have to decide today if we're going to use the one life he's given all of us for the glory of his coming kingdom. Based on this parable, it's entirely possible we could receive the gospel and not walk in light of it. We can receive spiritual gifts and gain nothing for his glory. And instead of offering a reward or a gift, he will say, why didn't you use the gift that I saw fit to give you why didn't you do the bare minimum? And we won't have an answer. I think we could compare this servant to a, a spiritual bludger. He thinks, you know, I can't be saved by works, so why work? What's the point of working my fingers to the bone when I have all I need in my eternal salvation by grace through faith? And what he didn't understand was the purpose in receiving the mina. He was not given a mina to work to show his worth for the kingdom, but because he was a servant of his master. He was a servant. That's his identity. That's his responsibility, to use what was given him for his master's benefit. We don't labor for the kingdom of God to be saved, but because we are saved, we must labor for the kingdom because we are God's servants. That's the whole point of this master and servant imagery to teach about the disciple's identity and our responsibility the delegation that sent that, you know, the delegation that went and said, we won't have this king rule over us, and that, that servant, they did the same thing, nothing. They didn't accomplish anything. Now, brothers and sisters, as God's given us the gospel, as he's given us this life, may we labor and love others in light of the gospel. 
I think a lot of the excuses we have to make can deal with time. Like, I didn't feel it was the right time to say something. Or, and like a servant, we can almost try to pin the blame on God because of what he's given us or that he hasn't really given us enough. We don't really feel comfortable with the gift he's given us. Uh, if he had given us another gift or more gift or a feeling that we've received a gift, we would be more bold. Um, if we had another gift more suited to our ability, we would certainly use that gift. Or, you know, that gift, that, that one I like. The one you've given me, not so much. I don't really think it's that useful. And we can be more afraid of offending people with the gospel than pleasing God. So it's like the risk outweighs the benefit of a reward from God. And instead of being content to move rocks or to sow seeds or to water seeds that were planted by other believers through God's word years ago, we feel like failures when we're not involved in the harvesting process. Like if I can't see something actually happen, like someone their countenance change in front of me or their life totally be transformed in a moment, then I really feel like a failure. We're not willing to be the ones to keep investing and to keep sowing and watering without digging up that seed to see, is anything happening in there? What happens when you do that? It doesn't grow very well. Keep it buried, and, but we're not to keep the word of God buried. We're not to keep our gift hidden away somewhere. Use that gift for God. We should trust God's word more than a farmer trusts the seed. Psalm 126, 5 and 6, it says, Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. The one who sows tears of repentance before God will rejoice with forgiveness. The one who faithfully sows the good seed of God's word will doubtless receive a reward from him. It says doubtless. There's no way it's not happening. It's a sure thing because God's promised it and he always does what he says. In due time, it will take time, but it will happen. Luke 19, verse 24, And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to him who has ten minas. But they said to him, Master, he has ten minas. For I say to you that to everyone who has will be given. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them and slay them before me. For the servant who stashed the mina away in a napkin, it was too late to make amends. Uh, there was no greater opportunities for him in the kingdom. The mina given to the wicked servant, it was taken away and given to the one who had ten. Now, this didn't seem very fair to the people who stood by. They're like, wait, he already has ten. Like, what about equality? What about, you know, equity? What about spreading it out evenly? Well, who's better suited to hold, to have more responsibility? Wouldn't it be the one who's most responsible? Yeah. Who would you give your mina to if you had one? The one who got a, a you know, what is that, a thousand percent increase? Um, a, a huge increase or the one who just put it in a napkin? And who are we to question what the master does with his things? Right? He's the one who gives the mina. It's his stuff. 
He can choose to give it to whoever he wants. The one who had been faithful in little would be faithful in a little more. God knows very well what he had given to each of his servants. It wasn't an oversight. And note, in this parable, the servant who did not wisely invest his master's mina remained his servant. It was grace alone that prevented further punishment. In Matthew 25, we see a similar parable where the unprofitable servant was cast out uh, into outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. So that's good. It's, it just illustrates the grace of God, that even when we're not as profitable as we ought to be or could be, God is still gracious. Jesus said, To everyone who has will be given, and from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. God's given us one life to be used for his glory, and those who do not have faith in Christ will lose their eternal souls. We who have received the gospel... We receive much more than everlasting life. We have an abundant life to be lived with Jesus today uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the picture of, of going back to David and Saul. David, he was faithful as he watched the flock of his father Jesse in the fields of Bethlehem. God chose him to be king over all Israel. Brought him out of the sheepfold. He was faithful with the sheep. And God's like, you can be king over the nation. You're a man after my own heart. The one who killed a lion in defense of the flock was the one God uh, empowered to kill that Philistine, Goliath of Gath, and free his people from potential slavery. David, he looked to build a house for God because he's like, I'm living in a cedar house. I'm living comfortably, but God's presence is in a tent. And God said, you wanted to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to give you a place for your descendants, an eternal kingdom where they will rule and reign forever. And David's like, wow, this is amazing. Now Saul, on the other hand, he began small in his own eyes. God gave him the kingdom, but then he was proud. He refused to obey. He, God took away the kingdom from him, removed his spirit from him, sent an unclean spirit to trouble him, and he ended up committing suicide. With his, and three of his sons died on that same day. So it's like he lost everything. It was taken away from him because of his choices to not honor God, to honor himself. He exalted himself and he was cast down. Now this parable, it's not to establish eschatology. It's to emphasize how important it is for the servants of God to labor, to use the gift given them in his absence. That the kingdom of God is not uh, immediately going to occur, but it will after a delay. And one day Jesus is going to return, having received the kingdom from his Father, and we ought to labor today for his glory. And those who were his enemies, they are to be slain. Like he's going to judge those who have refused his rule. And on the other side, those who follow Christ and trust in him, they will receive an eternal reward. Either we're servants of Christ or we're his enemies. There's nothing in the middle. Our actions as servants now will determine our future service unto the Lord in heaven. And whether we plant, water, or reap, all increase comes from the Lord. We can't claim that any profitability has come from us because we are those unprofitable servants. We've only done what is our duty to do. Now, it would be a great shame if all you received from this talk was get to work 
or be bogged down in guilt because you identify to a degree with that servant who buried, who put that mina in a handkerchief who was taken away. Um, Regret is vain unless you make amends. If you're just regretting how things were but not taking action about it, there's no repentance, there's no change, then what is a profit? It's vanity. So our call is to turn our attention to Jesus who has gone to the Father, who sits at the right hand, the one who has given you a gift, the one who's given you a life, the one who's given you the gospel, the one who's given you today to invest and to labor for the kingdom of God, to love one another as he loves you. He's called you a child of God by his grace. He's filled you with the Holy Spirit. He's made you part of the body of Christ. He's given you his word, and as 2 Peter 1.3 says, he's given you all that pertains to life and godliness. By faith in Christ, we lack nothing to be most fruitful and to receive the rewards. So please turn to 2 John, starting in verse 1. Excuse me, verse 5. It's only one chapter. 2 John, starting in verse 5. And it's John writing to a Christian lady, and uh, it's just a perfect way to sum up what we've discussed today. 2 John, starting in verse 5. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. As you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son." The Apostle John, he writes to this lady, and he reminds her, love one another. That's what God has commanded us to do. We're compelled by the love of God to walk in obedience to him. He says, yeah, there's deceivers. Many deceivers have gone out. He's not calling them by name. It's not to focus on the deceivers. There's deceivers then, and there's deceivers now. And they live like Jesus is never coming back. And instead of focusing on the deceptions, he says, look to yourselves. Make sure that you're walking uprightly, that you're not deceived, that you're not um, blaming God or others for your inaction, that you are laboring for his kingdom to receive a full reward. Don't you want a full reward? Like if God has a full reward, do you want that? And let's not employ some false humility to say, oh, you know, it's not about rewards. Come again? Like, God's given you a life that you, you value. He has given you spiritual gifts that we are to covet and to desire and to pray for. Who are you to say that that reward is nothing to you when God's given it to you? He has it set apart for you. Won't you receive that from him? Even to give it back to him. It's from him, for him. But value what God gives because he loves you. He wants you to be profitable and fruitful. 
we have an opportunity to give a good report to the king of kings when he settles accounts with us and he asks us, how did things go? We can say, your gift did this. Your son, your spirit worked this. What a privilege we have. Jesus said in Revelation twenty-two twelve, and behold, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. It's not a surprise. He's telling us beforehand, I'm coming back and my reward is with me. Let's value him above any reward or gift we could receive from him because he is our all in all. We've received him. I mean, what a savior that he would love us that we, we don't have to lose what we've worked for. We can receive a full reward. And we're to work while it's day because night is coming when no one can work. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us, for your spirit that fills us, and for the rewards you have for us. Lord, may we be motivated by your love to love one another not for the hope of obtaining crowns and mansions and things like the trinkets of this world, but that we have you and that we can live for you and walk with you and be fruitful for your glory today. Lord, I pray you would help us to do that through loving one another by using the gift you've given us. Thank you that the riches of the kingdom of God you've given are greater than gold or silver or treasures of this world. And I pray we would set our minds and our affections on things above, not on things of this earth, and that we would truly labor for you because it's you who gives the increase. We praise you, Lord, and thank you that you are glorious and good, that you are coming, and that we can be ready, and that we can be watchful looking to you and looking to ourselves, that we might, might receive that full reward. Oh, Lord, how good you are, how glorious Open our eyes to see you in truth and open our hearts to praise you and make our hands to labor for you, Lord, that we would speak forth your truth, that we'd walk in your wisdom and honor you for you are God and holy and righteous. In Jesus' name, amen.